Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Telegraph, the Telegraph. Podcasts. A subtle change with potentially far-reaching consequences. Note the word track has been dropped from test, track and trace. That's because the NHS app won't be ready for a few more weeks. Could Danish schools provide the blueprint for how British children could return to the classroom? It's now more than a month since Danish primary schools became the first in Europe to reopen following the coronavirus lockdown. And why drinks at the bar may be a thing of the past. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis. The UK will have a world-beating test and trace system in place by the 1st of June, but not necessarily a tracing app. That's the pledge of Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who insisted the government was making fast progress and announced it was increasing its recruitment target for human tracers. We've recruited 24,000 trackers, and by the 1st of June, uh, we will have uh, 25,000. They will be capable of tracking 10 the contacts of 10,000 new cases a day. And uh, to understand the importance of that statistic, I should just remind him that today uh, the new cases stand at 2,400. The announcement came as Sir Keir Starmer claimed the decision to abandon the original contact tracing scheme nearly 10 weeks ago had left a huge hole in our defences. But in a major boost for the government, the UK appears to be rapidly approaching its target of having capacity for 200,000 tests a day. The latest figures for the 24 hours to Wednesday morning show that over 170,000 tests were provided. The target of having a testing and tracing system in place by June the 1st coincides with the day the UK could see its next relaxation of lockdown rules if the rate of infection, the R value, doesn't rise above one. Gordon Rayner is The Telegraph's political editor. He says the date's particularly important, as it could be when children start returning to the classroom. Boris Johnson has insisted the test and trace system will be up and running by June the 1st, which also happens to be the date the government wants schools to go back. Teaching unions have said they want contact tracing to be in place before they will consider allowing their staff to return. So this now feels like a deadline the Prime Minister really must meet. But note the word track has been dropped from test, track and trace. That's because the NHS app, which tracks people and tells them if they've come close to someone with the virus, won't be ready for a few more weeks. The government has already recruited 24,000 human tracers whose job it will be to speak to people who test positive, find out who they've come into contact with and speak to those people to tell them to self-isolate for seven days. The problem for the government is that they will have to rely pretty heavily on people's memories. Unlike South Korea, where contact tracing has kept deaths below 300, the government does not have access to facial recognition CCTV software or real-time debit card data to work out where people have been. 
A government minister's admitted the country's likely heading for a two-tier restart in the opening of schools. Justice Secretary Robert Buckland said the opening was unlikely to be uniform, with at least two dozen councils now refusing to open schools on the dates set by Boris Johnson. But around the world, school gates are reopening, and where there were once excited shouts as children arrive for a new day, there are now instructions to keep your distance and regularly wash your hands. Denmark pioneered the start of the European return to school on the 4th of May by keeping its primary school children in small groups and with as little contact with others as possible. And Education Secretary Gavin Williamson praised the Danish model as he pushed forward with plans to reopen British schools in June. Richard Orange went to visit a school in Copenhagen to see how they were managing their new normal. Teacher Irene Nielsen greets her pupils wielding a bottle of alcohol gel. She gives each one a squirt into their right palm before they can enter the building. It's now more than a month since Danish primary schools became the first in Europe to reopen following the coronavirus lockdown. According to Nielsen, the process has gone surprisingly smoothly. You know what? It is uh, actually very easy because the kids are so, they get so used to it. So just me standing here, they see me and they know what to do. The routine have gone like really uh, quickly. We get into it. Yeah. There's not much sign of regimented queues or pupils spaced far apart. And Nielsen doesn't appear to pay much attention to how close two boys are playing football. But there are precautions in place. Head teacher Søren Fries takes me through them, starting with the alcohol gel dispensers mounted outside the schoolyard. So uh, the children are, are divided into groups. Then we can go up here. But then we have made some one-way signs. This class is uh, further than eighth grade. They're going in here, going out over there at staircase C. So what's the reason for that? It's because we don't want the children to transport each other uh, too close. The number of coronavirus cases continues to fall in Denmark. And on the day I visit Lykkebo School, the country marks its first day without a COVID-19 death since March. This success has encouraged Denmark to lift restrictions further. This week... Older students headed back to their classrooms. At this school, that means nearly 500 pupils altogether. On Monday, all the school are coming back to school. For now, we're about two meters between the desks. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Monday, one meter. So, Monday. does that mean the desks will be more or less how they were before? Yes, more or less. Then they will uh, see that the ends of the tables. So each class can be full again. Fries says that so far social distancing has been the main challenge for the kids. The children has all the time had a big difficulty to keep the distance, uh, especially when they are going to a break or going to play. Then it's very difficult for the children. And it's uh, both the young and the older children. And he says that many have benefited from the smaller classes. Yes, of course. Uh, every children would do that because you have more uh, observant teachers to each children all the time. When the teachers only have to look at 10 and be observing, us, how, how is it doing, how are you? And then when there's 25 people, it's, it's a lot more. The biggest problem for some students, he believes, has been having to study at home. 
if you look at the children and their mentally wellness, I think it's been hard. And uh, I think we got a lot of work to do when they come back. So far, the reopening of Denmark schools has been a success because it hasn't led to a surge in infections. Perhaps that reflects the skill of its teachers and the good behaviour of its pupils. But one thing's for sure, the school kids here are thrilled to be back in the classroom. Eyeshadow, cotton wool and antibody tests. Superdrugs become the first high street retailer to sell a coronavirus antibody test to the public. The finger prick blood test aims to tell you if you've ever had coronavirus. It's being sold online for £69. The companies urge people who receive a positive result from the test to continue following social distancing guidelines. So if the tests don't give you assurances of immunity, what do you actually learn from taking one? I put that question to Dr Al Edwards, Associate Professor in Bio biomedical technology at the University of Reading. These are going to become an essential tool in monitoring the disease and finding out who's had it. And they're a sort of essential tool as part of our public health management strategy. So it's more a case of tracking the disease, finding out more about how it's spreading or has spread rather than anything that should make people suddenly start hugging their grandparents. Yeah, so absolutely. And that, and that's the thing is the, the, the trouble is it doesn't eliminate any risk. Um, and so it's not an easy answer on an individual level. And maybe that's the easiest way to think about it is that it's not uh, a massive benefit on an individual level to you, but it is a terribly important tool for us as a sort of population, as a society to use. And this test has a sensitivity of 97.5%. I think if you were reading this quickly, uh, you could kind of mistake that phrase as accuracy, but there's a difference, isn't there? So the technical meaning of sensitivity is if you have 100 people infected with a disease, how many of them will you detect? So roughly 97 people tested out of that 100 will get a positive result and only three of them will get a negative result even though they have been infected. I think it's also really important to realise that that is sensitivity measured in a laboratory environment. When you release a test into the real world, the performance that you get may not even be the same as when it's tested in that sort of controlled laboratory evaluation. Where is accuracy? So accuracy is kind of a a sort of fudge of all of those uh, different factors put together. What you want is an accurate test, but you really need to understand what what that means underneath that overall accuracy to actually make any sense of what's going on. Queues of cars formed outside McDonald's on Wednesday as it reopened 33 of its UK drive through restaurants. As Britons rushed to get their fast food fix, spending was capped at £25 per car. That's 28 portions of small fries, so I think that'll more than make up for the lack of McDonald's over lockdown. But not all restaurants have the luxury of drive through facilities. And today, ministers were urged to be flexible in their approach to allowing the hospitality industry to implement social distancing. A trade body's published 75 pages of advice for ministers on the subject, and it shows how going out could look quite different after the days of staying in are over. Hannah Utley has the story. The future of socialising looks a whole lot calmer, but it also looks a lot less social. No more jostling to get your order in at the bar, no large groups in pub gardens, and no chance of striking up a conversation on the treadmill. They'll be kept distant under new proposals issued to the government. The plan, drawn up by trade body UK Hospitality, provides a glimpse into a new socially distanced world when Britain reopens, 
The guidelines deal a blow to fans of all-you-can-eat. They're recommending an end to the hotel buffet. Tips will become digital to minimise the handling of cash, which could harbour the virus. And if your food's a bit tasteless, bring your own salt and pepper. The body's recommending shakers and condiments are no longer placed on tables when the UK's restaurants finally open their doors. And roller coasters could become a more solitary experience. UK hospitality is advising leaving the middle seat free if riders come from different groups. Firms have been told they could reopen as early as July the 4th if they're able to do so safely. But the sector's been among the worst hit by the pandemic, with around a third of businesses predicting they'll never reopen some sites. For that reason, UK Hospitality is urging the government to grant the sector a rent-free holiday until the end of the year and says the VAT rate should be cut to help incentivise visits to tourist destinations. And for those that do reopen, it certainly won't be business as usual. This is Coronavirus, the latest from The Telegraph. I'm Theodora Leloudis and I'll have your next update on Thursday evening. A bit of a different episode on Friday. I'll be recording a special edition of the podcast in which I'll be pulling back the curtain on how we cover the crisis which none of us foresaw. Alongside my colleagues, global health security correspondent Anne Gulland and data journalist Dominic Gilbert. We know more than anyone that the news can contain conflicting information which is sometimes overwhelming and often confusing. And we want to provide you with some insight into our decision making process, especially with regards to how those facts and figures make it onto the page. But to do that, we need your questions. Maybe you'd like to know what the biggest challenge is, or one I get asked often is why journalists focus on the deaths rather than the recoveries, or simply what it's like producing an entire newspaper from your kitchen table. That's obviously not a one-person job. You can submit them via a link, which I'll put in the show notes to this episode. 